I just before we start here, I just would just mention to you that I, I, I felt like I wanted to split the worship in half, not because I like two short times of worship, but because I felt that because of where we're going today, that it would be helpful for us as a church family to um, worship after the message a little bit. And because um, today is probably, I think, maybe the most tender territory. Um, but anyway, I'll come back to that in just a minute. So um, that's why the service is a little bit different. We contacted the children's department, said they're going to start sooner today, and so you need them, you're going to have them a longer time. And um, we're, we've arranged to have communion today too, even though we did it last week. And um, so, um, all right. So let, let's get let's get into it. Today's the the my, today's proverb of the day is verse 15 out of chapter 12. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Every fool thinks they're doing the right thing, don't they? All the fools said amen. Yeah, amen. <laughs> I've completely been in that category more times than I want to confess. I'm, I'm still going to be in it again in, in the future, I'm sure. So we've been in this uh, series that I've, the title is Ultimate Journey, and it's the, t- it's, it's the, the topic of the series is what happens after we die. And so we've been um, taking a look at that from lots of different angles, and today is absolutely, I think, the most tender part of uh, a tender area of this series that, and I think it might be um, a very, maybe the most difficult and tender topic that I've ever preached on. I've never talked about this before. Um, Although I've walked with many families through this, what I'm going to describe to you today many, many times, um, it's just a very, very difficult, and um, it has to do with when a little one goes to be with the Lord something that no parent should ever have to do to, to bury their children, yet we do. And um, I, as I was preparing the, to get into the word on this, I, I, couldn't, I kept remembering something that happened just about 10 years ago. Maybe you are um, familiar with who, Christian musicians, and there's a guy named Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's got lots and lots of Dove Awards or whatever it is that they give to Christian musicians. I don't know what that is either. I don't know song titles, and I don't know the award names. But about 10 years ago, he made national news because, um, you know, here he was um, as a father, the most terrible probably day in his life, I would guess. You know, the, 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 we picked this story up after he had called 911 and was performing CPR on his little girl who, um, and, and then he found himself chasing in his car the helicopter that was flying his little girl to Vanderbilt University Hospital. Her, her name was Maria. And uh, she died. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure, I, I mean, I can't imagine what was being said in his heart and maybe out of his mouth in that car on that, that chase. You know, God, you can't let this happen. You cannot, I, I can't let this, th- there's no words. Don't let this happen to my little girl. Don't let her die. And um, this precious little five-year-old girl perished she was struck and killed by a car in her family driveway. And I can't remember all the details, but I think the car was being driven by her big brother. And it was, um, it was there was no fault. It was a, a, a five-year-old being rambunctious and running into danger, and he didn't see her, and he wasn't driving unsafely. He was just, you know, how do you explain that? It was a tragedy. It, it hit the Christian community at the time. I remember it kind of sent this shockwave. You know, wait a second. He's serving the Lord and all that kind of, you know, all those things that we think would maybe cause us to be immune from a broken world, but it's not true. And um, it hurt a lot of people. It was all over the news, but more than anybody else, it had to have just pulled the hearts inside out of a mom and a dad who lost their little precious five-year-old girl. People Magazine at the time covered the funeral. And um, here's the quote from the magazine. It said, The family raised their arms as they sang songs of worship and sought comfort in their faith. Stephen Curtis Chapman, afterwards, he told the press, here's a quote. He says, We talked with Maria about what it means to be with Jesus, but I had no idea how soon it was going to be. But we know that she is in his amazing house. And uh, what a wonderful thing. But I I think that's got to be one of the most difficult things in life to face, the death of a child. And although it hasn't happened to Lisa and me in our household, we've um, had to walk through it with, with a couple of our very, very close friends, two different families. We've 
walked alongside them as they've had to bury a son and one a son and one a daughter. And, and when I say close families, these are people whose children grew up in our household. We took family vacations together, the two families. I mean, we, 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 we raised these kids. Um, the girl who died called us her second parents, and there's just no way. And, and, and we were a step removed. And we watched the undescribable hurt and pain that was how it just ravaged the emotions of the family and the parents. And um, I mean, I've been to beyond those two. I've too many times I've, as the pastor, I've led a memorial service and a graveside service for someone who was burying a son or a daughter. And it's just it's it's it's, it's impossible. You get through the day. But what we're talking about here is impossible to, 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 you can't plan for it, you can't get through it, you just go, somehow you get through it. And I, I've found myself at the cemetery, you know, many times when I'm at a, doing a memorial service, I usually get there earlier than anybody else, and I stay longer than anybody else, and I don't know why, um, but I've found myself wandering around. If you've, if you've ever wandered around in the children's section, some cemeteries have children's sections, and just read the tombstones, I mean... How morbid a thing. Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, but I've walked around, and every one of these is, is more than a statement about someone's life. It's, 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 it's a lifetime described um, in a line or two, and it's just um, terrible to think. It's heartbreaking. It's emotional. And, um, I mean, some of the children you see are a month old or two months old or a year old or, you know, 24 hours old. And um, when a child dies, this, this shock, this tragedy seems bigger to us because it doesn't match up with our sense of chronology. That's not how it works. They, they're supposed to go way after mom and dad. And um, we just, in our heart, we say, this is not right. There's something wrong here. And um, we don't really know. And many times what we do is, what I've done is I just kind of compartmentalize it. I trust God, don't need to know the details, not going to face this, not going to deal with it. What, what, what's next? Kind of a thing. I think that's pretty common. So what happens to babies when they die? Do they automatically go to heaven? Do they go to a place called limbo, which maybe you've been taught um, if you uh, were raised in the Catholic theology suggests that, um, and I, I don't believe it's a scriptural um, teaching, um, that, um, that, that children, um, they can't go to heaven and be at perfect peace with God because they don't have a relationship established with Jesus and they haven't been baptized by the church, but they didn't do um, any sins that, that we can pin them down for, um, and, but they came with original sin, therefore they don't, they don't go into hell, so they go into this place called Limbo. Limbo was actually um, an invention of the Catholic Church in about the 1300th, uh, 13th century, and, and the word limbo means edge, as in edge of hell. That's not where they go. What happens to these precious little ones? And you might be asking yourself right now, going, okay, Terry, I guess, you know, we happen to come this week. What are you doing? Why this sermon? Why is this important? This has nothing to do with me or my family. That's good news, and I'm really glad for you. I'm sincerely and truly glad for you if you've never been touched by this. But statistically... A lot of us have either experienced it or we're close to it. And maybe it'll never impact you, and I hope that's true. But if it ever does, you need to know scripturally how to minister life to people around you. And so either you need to be ministered to, or it will help you to be ministered to, or you may need this at some point. So that's why we're going on this. And because it's part of the Word of God, so we're going to walk through this. And now, before we go too far, um, I'm, I'm going to kind of paint the perspective of what the landscape looks like here, and um, I like to do a little bit of study on those kinds of things. So I'm going to share some statistics and some facts with you that could be scary. And I want to start by saying, you know what? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So we're going to just talk about the truth here, but we're going to keep our thoughts captive. And if you haven't had a child, or if you're planning to have a child, and you think, oh, this is what I face, that's, don't think that way. Take those thoughts captive and say, okay, I trust the Lord God, the author of life, and when he calls me in my household, and if someday we should become pregnant and have children, or our, our children become pregnant, we're going to trust this and walk through this. We're not going to be scared by this. So let me pray. God, 
First and foremost, would you cover our hearts and our thoughts that today, as we walk through some very, very tender subjects, that our viewpoint today might be heaven's safe place, not the fearful thoughts that hell would want to wedge into our mind or a perspective that's anything other than about your word because this is your house. This is not a house of fear. This is not a house of politics. This is a house of, of the word of God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. So it's been estimated, and I've, I tried to pin this down, but the numbers are hard to pin down, but they think that somewhere between 10 and 20% of all pregnancies will not complete the 20th week of pregnancy. You know, many of you have experienced maybe a miscarriage as well. Um, in the United States, well, all around the world, sudden infant death syndrome, which was, you know, it, it, it used to be a fairly significant cause of child deaths in our country. The rates in the United States have dropped significantly since the 1990s. Sadly, they've not reached zero. Total infant deaths before age one in the United States, it's about six per thousand pregnancies. Per, per, about uh, six per, per thousand births, excuse me. That's uh, kind of middle of the road in the world. The best statistic in the world is Monaco. So if you got the bucks, have your baby in Monaco, um, that's down to about two per thousand. The worst in the world is Afghanistan, 111. Over 10% of children won't make their first birthday. And uh, here's the thing. You can do these kinds of, gather these kinds of numbers, but these are not statistics. These are eternal souls that we're talking about. Where do they go? What happens to them? And I think that's a question we really need an answer to. And I think we need more than just an emotional answer. We need to have a biblical, we want a biblical answer to this. And I think that there are places that you go, and there, in fact, sadly, in fact, some churches would say, oh, we don't know, we can never know. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Um, I think, I believe we can know. In fact, I can tell you right now, I'll jump to the end of the message, when a child do dies, they go right straight into the presence of Jesus, right in the presence of the Lord. And I want to show you that, though, from Scripture. So, today our text, Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15. Then little children were brought to him, that's to Jesus, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now, before we um, go you know, explore this text, I want to tell you what this text does not say. It does not refer to infant baptism. Um, you, know, you, you, you have to torture this text to get it to say that. You know, if you, can, you, can, if you torture someone, you can eventually get them to say anything you want. Same thing with the Word of God. If you torture it, you can twist it to make it say something you want it to say. It does not, this does not teach child baptism. It doesn't do that. But a lot of people will try to cite this passage as proof um, of people who believe in baptismal regeneration. Um, so it doesn't teach that. However, this passage does have everything to do with who Jesus lets into his kingdom. So um, he says, for such is of the kingdom of heaven. Now, within this passage, I want to, 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 I'd like to take a look at the different viewpoints that are present. And um, there are, we're going to look at it from basically today from two specific viewpoints, although there are many stakeholders in this story. Um, okay, so, so the people who have viewpoints, we got first, number one would be Jesus Christ. Second one would be um, the, the disciples. Another viewpoint here would be uh, the parents who bring the children. A fourth viewpoint would be the children themselves. And I suppose a fifth viewpoint, could, there could have been a crowd around, so there's maybe other observers. But for the most part today, we're going to talk about this from the viewpoint of the parents, you know, the parents who, and their spiritual concern and what's going on for their children, and then from the viewpoint of Jesus and his, his special care for these kids. Okay, so verse 13, where it says, Then little children, marker there, we'll come back to that, we'll talk about that, were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. This was a really common practice to bring children to a rabbi who would then lay his hands on, um, on the child to bless the child, to pray for the child and, you know, about the, Lord, the child's safety in their future. It was a very, very common practice and it went all the way back to the time of the patriarchs. Um, I could give you several examples. I'll give you one. One example is Joseph who um, had Manasseh and Ephraim, and he raised those two sons in Egypt, and um, 
um, there's, there comes a point where he takes them to his father, Jacob, and for this very specific person, so, so that Jacob could lay his hands on them and uh, bless them. And that's one example, and you can read through that whole story. There was some fun stuff that goes on there. Um, Jacob, who swapped his hands and did some, that's a pretty cool story, but I won't take time on that. A second place is something called the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, which is this list of, of it's kind of like the, um, the bylaws of being a Jew at the time. It was like, here's how we do life, and here's the rules, here's what you do. And one of the things that the Talmud taught was that you would take your child to um, a notable rabbi or some spiritual leader, spiritual leader and it became a custom in the Jewish community to take your child to a rabbi on their first birthday who would lay his hands upon them and bless them and, and pray over them. And, and here, we, we do something similar. We bring children to Jesus, um, you know, but we'll come back to that. But this, this thing about the little children, I said, remember little children? Um, the Greek word there is pahidion, which means, it, it, it means literally infant, and it literally means half-child. If you study it out, what it means is anybody from birth to about age five or six toddlers would be included in this category. So Jesus is, is including anything from birth to, you know, preschool age, give or take. And, and today, we, you know, like I said, we, we kind of follow that custom a little bit here. We, we do baby dedications. And by the way, a baby dedication is not to take the place of infant baptism. That's not what we're doing here. Um, it's, it's, we, don't, we don't hold to those kind of superstitions that you better do this thing, uh, this religious thing, and if you don't, you, know, you pay the price. That's not what that's about. It's, we believe that, uh, that, that, that baby dedication is a way for parents to publicly say, we are in partnership with the creator, the actual owner of this baby, the one to whom it belongs, and um, we want to say to our church family, help and uh, we want this family to know this, that we're part of this family and this child is part of this family. And uh, you know, so it's, it's a good thing to do. And, and, and in this situation, it's no wonder that these parents wanted to take their kids to Jesus to um, you know, put, put his hands on them. And they, they've watched what his hands have done. They've seen his hands heal people. They've seen him give sight to blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears. So who wouldn't want that kind of blessing on their children? And so they brought their, their kids to Jesus. And I would suggest the same for you. Get your kids to Jesus as soon as you can. You know, in the very earliest years, you know, you, you, you know you, maybe you would think, well, I don't know. I mean, they're too young. They don't really understand. We should, um, we should let them grow up and learn all this stuff. And then someday they can make a decision on their own. Okay, I get that, but don't do that. <laughs> I would suggest you don't do that. Instead of allowing them to be exposed to every kind of philosophy that will chip away at truth and faith and hope that there's enough left there for some purchase, for some place to stand for the, the truth, instead, teach them when they're young the truth and teach them about all of the philosophies and explain why they aren't true. But So at, at the earliest age, get your kids to know Jesus. Um, Charles Spurgeon um, um, put it this way. Before a child reaches seven... Teach him all the way to heaven. And better still, the work will thrive if he learns before he's five. I mean, as young as you can. Because parenting is a partnership with God in discipling children. So, I mean, I think it, when your children start to ask questions or mention the name of Jesus, stop what you're doing, pull the car over and say, let's talk about that. It's more important than whatever appointment you're headed to. It's, it's, it's really, really important. So, so it's a beautiful story so far. They're, they're bringing the children to let the creator of the heavens and the earth hold them on his lap. And, but then, then catch this, verse 13, but the disciples rebuked them. Wow. <laughs> they're about to get rebuked themselves. I mean, I mean how crazy. Wait a minute. These, these guys have been with Jesus for at least a couple years They've heard his messages, they've seen how he loves people, but they obviously don't share his heart concerning children. And this is a very strong word, rebuked. It means scold, sharply reprimanded, literally. It's like, hey, get out of here, you filthy little animals. <laughs> Something, <laughs> you know. Why would the disciples do that? <laughs> Sorry. They are filthy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it's like, why would they do that? Now, there are several possible reasons, but this is where 
my study gets sideways. I'm trying to figure, I read these stories and I go, okay, that was a dumb thing on their part. Why were they thinking that way though? What was going on in these guys that would let them even get to that point? Well, there's several possibilities. One possibility is that the, the disciples had been influenced by the culture present in their day. It was a, a, a culture that was largely shaped by Rome and Greece, so this Greco-Roman, um, their, their, their perspective in that culture was that they're just children. They're, they're just, it's a, it's a denigrating, they're just children. Children were insignificant in those cultures um, because childhood was considered the most insignificant part of life. Did you know that a couple of thousand years ago in these pagan cultures, unwanted children were just simply abandoned? They were just abandoned. You know, they were just cast out. Um, if they, were, they weren't want, they, they were abandoned just at nighttime or left in an open field. It was a very common practice, especially if they were a girl. Now, because if a boy, as a boy grew up, he'd be able to produce some income, maybe some commercial value for the family. But a girl eventually could become a financial burden upon the family. So um, the, the girls were cast out. Here's a, here's a letter that's an excerpt from a husband. And this is, you, you, can, you can actually look this up and read this yourself. And this is a letter from a soldier back to his wife. About, about a couple of thousand. This is within 100 years of Jesus. Okay, so know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all the others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech of you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I'll send them to you. Hey, honey, the check's in the mail. Okay. If, if good luck to you, you bear offspring, if it's a male, let it live. If it's a female, expose it. Now, this word uh, exposed actually means abandon. So what would happen is they would aban- actually literally abandon the child on the roadside or um, depending upon what they were hoping would happen, very, very common. Um, and in Rome, one of the places that they would sometimes re- just, leave, just leave a child on the, on the roadside is a place ca- called the, um, the Column Lactaria. And here's a picture of it. It was a place at the, one of the major city markets, and it was a place you could go to hire a wet nurse. And so um, maybe, many, maybe many babies were abandoned there, maybe with the hope that they would become adopted by being breastfed by one of the available wet nurses. You see, the thinking there was, I'm going to abandon this baby, but not really sure if I want it to die. But many babies were abandoned, sometimes outside the city, sometimes intentionally naked because the, um, the people abandoning them wanted them not to, to, to live. And so there was very often very little hope of survival. And many of them didn't survive. But some that did, here's what happened to them. They would either be raised as slaves or as gladiators or prostitutes. And another Roman practice that kind of goes down the same line, I'm sorry about telling you these things. This is going to be over quick. Another thing they, did, they would do is sometimes they would smear the breast with opium residue and the baby would just go to sleep. Maybe, maybe this kind of Greco-Roman worldly thinking was, had influenced the disciples. Maybe. That's one possibility. Now, you might say, as I do, sorry, I, I get the thinking and I get that the culture was there, but no sale, Terry. I don't think the disciples thought that way. They love Jesus and they love people. I don't think they thought that way. I think you could be right. In fact, maybe they were tainted all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum by the religious thinking of the day. Because a very religious view of children, sadly, the most religious people of that day, the Pharisees, didn't think all that well of children either. Here's why. Pharisees believed that you earn your salvation. And since children are young and they had no way to earn their salvation, they weren't saved and that's... um, They just... Can't, there's no way that to, to earn their salvation. They're just insignificant until they earn their salvation. Go away, you little gnats. You know? <laughs> you know? I mean, it's a terrible attitude, but maybe it was the world's thinking or maybe the other end of the spectrum, religious thinking, possibly. Anyway, so this account that we're reading here 
in the scripture is so important to the Holy Spirit. There are the, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, the, the first four books in the New Testament. Three of those are called the synoptic gospels. That's just basically a word that says they kind of told the cr- chronology and the history of things that are going. Three of those, all three of the synoptics include this account. It's so important to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit wanted it in there over and over and over again so that we wouldn't miss this. And when I see that kind of thing, I, I, when I'm studying, I look for thread. I look for the thread. I look to see what's the pattern, because sometimes if you can capture what the pattern is, you can get a better handle on what the Holy Spirit's going for. That's just my belief, and it's kind of an approach. So I'm, I'm looking at this same story now, and I'm jumping over into um, the book of, of Luke, Luke's description. And um, you can read what's going on right before and after sometimes if it's in the same context, and it helps as well. So here we are in Luke's story, in, in starting in uh, chapter 18, verse 9. So now this is a parable Jesus told. Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves because they were righteous, but who looked down on everyone else. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. (laughs) Thieves, dishonest people, adults, I'm not like them. Or even this tax collector sitting over here. I'm so glad I'm not like this guy. Wow. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my entire income. He's, he's bragging about his good works and trusting in himself. Jesus keeps on with the parable, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance and would not even look up to heaven. Instead, he continued to beat his chest. Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner that I am. So how does Jesus sort these guys out? Verse 14, I tell you, This man, rather than the other, went down to his home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the person who humbles himself will be exalted. Right after that parable, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Because God's kingdom belongs to people like these. Do you see the connection there? I mean, this is I I see the Holy Spirit's thread all over this. It's not the self-righteous that are justified. It's not the spiritually elite. It's not the moral achievers. It's all those who, like little children, recognize their own hopelessness. Apart from Christ, we're hopeless, and, and, and we completely and totally depend upon Jesus' grace. Now, that leads to a third possibility for why the disciples could think this way um, and didn't value G- children as Jesus did. But before we go there, I want our hearts to capture something else because I, I think we're walking out into the area that um, might be tenderest for many of us. It is for me personally. Um, because, uh, but, and I, I want you to understand something, church, that this is a place of grace. It's not a place of condemnation, right? You understand that the house of the Lord is a place of grace, not condemnation. Um, and so here are two scriptures that will help us remember God's heart towards us as we, as, we, as we face some difficult things to consider. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. No condemnation. So how much condemnation? None. Okay. By the way, condemnation and conviction are two different things. The Lord is happy that the spirit would convict you of something because he wants you to, to repent to stop what you're doing and turn and go a different direction, okay? So no condemnation. Conviction does happen. Happens to me. And then the words of Jesus um, in uh, John chapter 3, for God so loved the world, you know this, he, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's usually where it stops. Keep reading verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. This is not about condemnation. Everybody good on that? Okay. Third possible reason that the disciples were okay with their mindset or they carried this mindset is maybe, just maybe, beginning at the fall, the fall of Adam, nobody thinks and loves children like Jesus does. Now, if you feel assaulted by that comment, please forgive me. Maybe you love children immensely. Maybe you love them more than everybody around you. But I just postulate this possibility that after the fall, our hearts are not quite the same. 
And consider the possibility that that is a hellish strategy ever since the fall, that there's a strategy present to oppose the things of God ever since the fall. And, and part of that plan would be to insert opposing ideas into the hearts of all of mankind. Well, here, here are a couple of examples in Scripture of Jesus describing Satan's strategies. John 10, 10, the thief, Jesus is calling him basically the thief of souls. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you see that Jesus considers Steal, kill, and destroy as the opposite of life? Interesting. And here's another one, John 8, 44. This is also Jesus talking. He's talking about the devil. Was a murderer from the beginning and has never been truthful. Since there is no truth in him, don't expect anything that comes from hell to be truthful. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks in character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And I really believe that hell has a strategy that if it was possible to inject lies into the heart of every human being. And one of the lies is a devaluing, a devaluing of children. Even to the point of their demise. Because if you look through history about the way people disposed of children, the Romans, the Greeks, they were not alone in infanticide. It was... Various forms have been practiced in all kinds of ancient cultures, in India and China and Japan and Amazonian societies, the Solomon Islands, in the Inuit cultures, even among the population of U.S. slavery. There were moms that said, no, I'm not going to let my child be raised as a slave. And I mean, it, it's, it's, it's all through that. And it continues right up to today, right up to today, places like China and India and elsewhere. And to most of Western culture... The, thought, the, thought, the very thought of killing a child is just morally wrong. It's just morally wrong. Yet, before we pat ourselves on the back for our advanced thinking, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that the value of children in the world largely disappears at the womb. And um, just, just to give you a snapshot of what that means, um, this is a picture of the 2018. It shows in the world, every place that's not red, abortion is legal, on demand. And the ones in red, it's mostly legal um, for a few reasons. Now, before we go too far on this, I want to tell you a personal testimony. Is I have a tremendous regret, regret in my heart about one evening in my past when I was not only believing I believe the lie, but I was also pounding the chest of my righteousness, just like that Pharisee in Jesus' deal. And it was about the lie. I was, about, I was age 14, unsaved. My family was unsaved. We didn't know the Lord. And one evening in January of 1970, I found myself sitting in the, the gallery of the Washington State Senate on the evening that our Senate voted in this state to make abortion legal. Clapping and cheering. Aren't we progressive? And all of those things. And I feel, I feel now that... I feel today when I look at this, and I've felt regret about that. I don't feel condemnation, by the way. I don't, and I no longer feel conviction. Jesus and I have talked about that. It's all sorted between the two of us. But I still have tremendous regret. It still breaks my heart because I have a very, very small fractional part of responsibility for the abortions that happen around us. But it's not zero. And um, the idea that I could believe personally that children were of less value breaks my heart that somehow they can be abandoned or discarded. And I believe that that philosophy never was birthed in the hearts of men. It was put there. It was put there. And it was at this moment in my study this week that my my, my study place was absolutely invaded by the Holy Spirit. I, I, I 
I know that when I say the word abortion, many of us immediately put on a political lens and it becomes a political topic. That is not my discussion here. That's not my role to tell you how to vote or about rights and so forth. I just know this, that the moment that we start clinging to our rights rather than the word and the love of Christ, our feet have now departed from a trail to a dangerous, on a dangerous trajectory. And, you know, I've, I've ministered as a pastor now to too many people who have said, I exercised my rights back then and I felt good about it. And now I'm broken in my heart. Help to tell you that it's more than a choice. It has spiritual implications. It's a spiritual decision. And here's what happened as I was in my study. When the Lord invaded, it was not a moment of conviction. It was a moment of promise. And he said, when you get to this moment, I want to heal people. I want to touch and heal parts that have carried this baggage with, with them their whole lives since that time. I think Jesus wants to heal um, people here, many people here, of wounds maybe and of guilt that have, um, maybe it was an abortion that you chose, or maybe it was one that you supported or one that you recommended or maybe you clapped and cheered the right the Lord wants to heal us of any kind of guilt associated with any of that the Lord wants to heal us of guilt of any sort of guilt that's associated with undervaluing children in any way and I can't tell you if it's happened in your life or how it's happened in your life but the Holy Spirit can and I, I believe the Holy Spirit is right now Remember two things, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, and God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So what I want to do is just for a moment, um, I've asked leaders to be available, and listen, it's incredibly important to me, I really believe it's incredibly important to the Holy Spirit that nobody here has their dignity stripped. This is a place of mercy and grace. Please don't allow yourself to look at who's getting prayed for or who goes up for prayer or who doesn't go up for prayer and somehow make an assessment and a calculation in your heart. That would be a sin. Don't do it. Instead, pray. Just If this, is, if this topic doesn't impact you, then pray over your brothers and sisters and be glad for the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. And for many of you, this, this, this topic is, is associated with shame. And you're going to sit in your seat and the Lord's going to heal you in your seat. And it's mission accomplished between you and the Holy Spirit. But I know the Lord has spoken something else to me about this. Um, for some of you, this will happen for you by the laying on of hands. Listen, I don't believe in hocus pocus and I don't think that there's a, a formula that you do these three things and out comes the fruit. Um, that's not really scriptural, but there are ex examples. First off, the whole passage here is talking about laying hands on. But secondly, Jesus even taught that concerning a different topic, but he said concerning some demonic deliverance, he said, some don't come out except by prayer and fasting. There are times that our physical posture and the things we do are significant to what happens and what's released in the heavenlies and what's bound in the heavenlies and what's released on the earth and what's bound on the earth. And I believe that for some people, the laying on of hands is part of it for, for some reason between you and the Holy Spirit. So in the next couple of minutes, I just want to just take a couple of minutes and pray. And for some of you, you need to have someone lay hands on you. And for that, there will be many leaders here who are going to stand up and uh, just, you don't have to confess your life. You don't have to do anything. Just say, hey, pray for me. I want to be touched by the Holy Spirit. And they're going to pray for you. And this is not going to be a lengthy time. We're not going to now stop for 20 minutes. And I mean, don't feel pressured to do anything here other than be available what the Spirit would do. So I'd like to ask the, um, the, the, the prayer team, pastoral team, church leaders, council, whoever, uh, whoever happens to be here and you're available, would you please stand up and go somewhere that you could be pray, praying for someone? And um, um, listen, I trust these leaders. I trust that they would love you and care about you. Rick and Penny, would you guys pray for people today too? Okay. Um, 
would you, would you find yourself a, a place? And listen, don't feel com- compelled, but feel welcomed to let someone pray for you. And um, so uh, we're just going to wait on the Lord for a couple of minutes. Lisa and I are going to pray for people too. So um, if, if you're not going to get out of your seat, pray for others, would you? Okay. Please sweep it from our hearts if there's any of it there. If there's, it, 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 I, I think that this group of people is, are some of the most loving, child-loving group of people that I've ever encountered in a church. We've made children welcome in this room and we invest in them in our community. Yet, God, you see the corners of our hearts. Sweep them, Lord, I pray, that our viewpoint about children would be as close to yours as is heavenly possible. And forgive us, Lord, where there would have been any season, any time, any act, any decision in our hearts that failed you in this. I pray, God, that when people in our community hear or the topic of Crossroads Church comes up, that when they think about us, they would say, oh, that's that group of people that loves kids. Let that be um, our testimony in this community. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with life. And, God, that you would fill us with hope. And, um, God, I thank you for that in your faithfulness. In the name of Jesus. So um, I'm, I've also asked um, for the ushers to prepare communion for us. So we're going to pass out the elements and... We're not going to take a lot of time on this. We received communion last week. But this was the second part of what I really felt like the Spirit said. Um, deal with a topic like this. Then let's also do it, do it in remembrance of Jesus. We don't, we don't, I didn't want to put that moment, these moments in our message for um, religious purposes. But because I believe that the Spirit um, wants to do a work in our hearts. And so communion seems to, to be the right way. So they're gonna, the elements are going to come. We're going to go fast on passing out the elements, right? Right, guys? Let them fly. Let them fly. Thank you. Communion 
was the idea of the creator of the heavens and the earth. Right? And um, the whole point here is to get our focus back on the creator. The whole point here is to get our focus back on the Savior. So, I know some of us are still waiting for elements. That's why we do this, to remember Christ. I'm going to pray over the elements and um, invite you to receive them both, the broken body and the blood of Christ. The broken body is the price that was paid physically. The blood is the solution to our brokenness. God, thank you for so much love that we can't really even understand or comprehend it. The choice you made to love us and then to show it by paying a terrible price and the solution you provided couldn't ha- could not have been more personal or intimate than your own son. We're grateful, God. We receive, when we receive these elements, Lord, we are saying to ourselves and to you and to anyone who sees us doing this that Christ is our Lord, our Savior, my Lord, my Savior. I receive these elements in the name of Jesus. Go ahead. saints said amen okay if you're still getting your elements go ahead you don't have to wait for me sorry okay I just would mention to you also that um, the prayer team will be available after service to pray with you for any reason and uh, they just would love to cover you and help you so um, make your way up and they'll be available if you if you want prayer okay so something else to um to note about these disciples, I think we're good. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so something else about these disciples, something else that we can see going on about them and their responses. I, I think that children want to come to Jesus. I think it's in kids. I think once they find out about Jesus, um, it, 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 even I've noticed this even among children of unbelievers that um, they want to come to Jesus. And it's often the adults that kind of derail that or get in the way. I mean, I think God put that within their hearts. And it's parents, 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 don't steer your kids away. Please don't do that. I mean, make it easy for your children to love Jesus, to to come to him. Any signal that they give you that's spiritual, seize that moment and and evangelize them and seize those little ones. In the next next couple of verses um, in this chapter, um, we're going to shift from the parents' personal perspective to um, Jesus' personal care in verse 14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me, which I think completely blew up the minds of the disciples. But the parents were loving that moment, right? The parents bring the kids. The disciples are gatekeepers are saying no. And Jesus says, no, no, let them come backstage pass. Parents are going, all right. Kids get to come to the front. But, it, but it's just one verse. And don't forbid them, for it's of, of such is the kingdom of heaven. It's one little verse, but it is so significant. And it's so important. It, it's a major statement that Jesus makes about the value of kids. It's, it's a statement he makes about his tender love for them. It's, and it's a statement he makes about their access to God. And, and through all of Scripture, we see a very tender spot in God's heart towards children. There are lots of examples examples. One really notable one um, that's, that's a pretty emotional one. You'll find it in Ezekiel 16. You don't have to turn there, but basically in that passage, God is comparing the nation of Israel to children, and it's a very tender description. It's nurturing words he's using. And then as this narrative goes on, um, the nation, as it grew up, they turn away from God. 
they reject God, and they become very idolatrous in their practices. And God, um, God confronts those practices, and that's what's going on in, in Ezekiel. And they end up, it gets to the point where the parents are actually sacrificing their children to Moloch. Now, um, here, let me read, read some of this to you, verse 20, 16, verse 20. Moreover, you took your sons, this is God talking to the children through the, through the prophet, to the, to, uh, talking to the children of Israel. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter, that you have slain my children and offered them up, offered them up to, to, by causing them to pass through the fire? Okay, I'm not going to leave this slide up for very long, but this is a picture of an idol they created named Moloch, and you'll see his hands outstretched. Okay, put the picture down, please. What's going on here is they would heat the idol to red hot and place their babies in the hands. And that's what God is talking to them about. Stop it. He's saying this is terrible. And, and, and here's the point of this passage. God's laying claim to these children. These are not the children of believing Jews. These are the children of idolaters. These are the children of pagans. He's not saying that they were his children because their parents were saved. He's saying, these are my kids, all of them, because they exist as children. He's saying, they're mine. You bore them to me. They're my kids. And verse 14 that we were in in our passage also shows this really special access that children get of such is the kingdom of heaven. The NASB translation of that passage says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In other words, it belongs to children and to those who are like children. Now, interesting, interesting to understand here, until a child reaches a condition, this, this age of accountability, they get that special access to God. You know, the children, these children in, in, in verse 14 have not reached an age where they're capable of exercising faith, a saving faith. They're incapable of rebelling against God. And there are a lot of scriptures that, that, that talk about when a child um, dies before that age of accountability that they're in heaven. There are lots of scriptures that talk about it. What's that age? I can't tell you. Not because it's a secret. It's because I don't know. You can ask me after church. I still won't know. Okay? Um, I think it varies. I really believe it varies from child to child. But I want to show you some scriptures um, showing this truth. Okay? And this starts right out in Deuteronomy 1 verse, uh, verse 39. God says to the children of Israel, Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it. He's talking about the promised land. And they shall possess it. So he's talking about the generation that are not yet at the age of accountability. That phrase, you have no knowledge of good and evil. These, these, are, these are people, they're children, who have no clear, no true understanding of what's right and what's wrong. They have no sense of the law at all. And they have no conscious rebellion against the law of God. They're, they're, in fact, they're little kids, they don't even know what the law of God is. And God doesn't consider them responsible moral agents yet. Two times in the book of Jeremiah... Uh, chapters 34 and 19, God calls little children by the term innocence. Innocence, okay? He says, you know, you know their parents are sacrificing their children, and, and he says, you have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. Here's the thing. If God calls somebody innocent, they're innocent, Right? They're innocent. I mean, he doesn't toss that phrase out lightly through scripture. He says innocent. Does that mean that the children are not sinful? No. Does, does that mean that your children haven't fallen? No. It, it, everybody, everybody has a bent towards evil. You don't, and you don't have to teach a child, right? You don't have to teach a child the, the no thing. They, it comes naturally to them. <laughs> the testing and the pushing and the prodding and, and the hitting and the stuff that they'll do. That, you know, they just start doing it and they, they go through that. You, but it doesn't mean, it, it, what it does mean, though, is that, that a child cannot discern God's law and can't be held guilty for premeditated sin because they don't have any, they don't have any volitional rebellion against God. And here's another example. God, God um, the whole story of, of Jonah, you know, God takes Jonah to Nineveh. Jonah goes kicking and screaming the whole way. And uh, long story short, saves the entire city. And Jonah hates the Ninevites. He wants God to just wipe the place out. 
And he's having a chat with God about it. You know, he's, I was counting on you to destroy these people, God. And, and um, um, chapter 4, verse 11, here's God talking back. He says, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between right and wrong? He's saying to, to, to Jonah, Jonah, you want me to destroy a city with 120,000 children? 120,000 innocents? You want me to, okay, that's another, here's another one. King, I love this one, King David. Um, in 2 Samuel, he's, the context here is he's, he's, um, he's sinned with Bathsheba. You know the story probably. Um, Bathsheba gets pregnant, and um, David has her, husband, her, her actual husband murdered. Then he marries her. It's just a sorted, terrible, sinful episode. The child is born, he gets sick, and for a week, Scripture says David fasts, and he prays, save my baby. But the child dies. Scripture says David washes himself. He changes his clothes. He worships God, and then he eats food in that order. It's an interesting, that's a whole sermon. We'll do that sometime maybe. He washes, he, he changes, he worships, and then he eats. Okay, so, and, but anyway, so his servants watch this. He's, they're afraid to tell him the child has died, and now they watch him eh, back to business as usual. Doesn't make sense. What's up, David? And here, here he is. But now he's dead. Why should I? Here, here's David's answer. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Then catch this. He says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Here's David, who has certainly believed and written a lot about heaven on lots of different sp spots. And he says, one day, I'm going to go be with my child because he can't come here, but I'm going there. Great testimony. Jesus, you know, in our text, this text we've been reason, reading, Jesus takes these little children in his arms and he lays his hands on them and he prays for them and the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When a baby dies, it goes to heaven. And if that child hasn't reached a level of a, a, a accountability, there's this special mercy. Not, not, not because they deserve it, but because God's merciful. The kingdom of heaven belongs to children because children belong to God. He claims them. He absolutely claims them. And, and you can be absolutely certain that when a child dies, they go right straight to heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I believe that that, that includes mentally handicapped people. I, think, I believe it does. Revelation 7 is another interesting um, descri description. It has a passage that says in Revelation 7 that says that every nation, every tribe, every people will eventually be standing before the throne of God. But we also know that some tribes have no knowledge of God and no relationship with God, nothing to do with God. So how is it that some people from those tribes... Well, I, I believe um, that, that there are children who die before they're accountable and they're immediately in God's presence. We don't, we don't own our children. You get that? They're entrusted to us. You know, they're, they're, they're in our care and our training and maybe for 18 or 20 years or 30 or 35, depending on. <laughs> <laughs> and we're just the stewards. And at any moment, a sovereign God can say, you know, I want them now and I'll take care of them I'll surround them with all kinds of special. It'll be really wonderful for them, but I'm calling one of my children home. In 1861, Charles Spurgeon, you know, I quote him. He's a great preacher, and I like to read his, his, his sermons. Um, he was preaching to his church, which he, he pastored uh, a church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, big, huge church of its day, 1860. And um, he, he shares this story. Suppose you're a gardener employed by someone else. It's not your garden, but you're called upon to tend it, and you have your wages paid to you. You've taken great care with a certain number of roses. You've trained them up, and there they are, blooming in their beauty. You pride yourself, you pride yourself upon them. You've come in one morning into the garden and find that the best rose has been taken away. You're angry. You go to your fellow servants, and you charge them with having taken the rose. They declare they had nothing to do with it. And then one says, I saw the master walking here this morning. I think he took it. Is the gardener angry anymore? No. And once he says, I'm happy that my rose has been so fair as to attract the attention of the master. It's his own. He's taken it. Let him do what seems good to him.
if, God forbid, that should ever happen to you. And I pray it wouldn't. I pray that your children grow to a ripe old age and they bury you instead. Should Jesus tarry. But if in God's sovereignty that happens, know that your child will be forever cared for in the loving arms of Christ. Every child. No matter how and when they went. Be freed by that. And I would say this to you. If you want to be like King David and go to them, the only way you can go to them is if you go the same way they went. By the grace and covering mercy of God, of Jesus Christ. You have to go with Christ as your Savior to get into the kingdom. It belongs to such as these. That's the promise. Let's pray. Father, um, we were born in sin. We've got this fallen nature that's got to be dealt with. So we're grateful, Lord, that, and a thankful God, too, that by your mercy, you've placed children into this special category and you cover them. Lord, I pray for mom and dads, people who have lost sons and daughters. Lord, bring mercy and heal the wound. And God, help us, Lord, to find ourselves full of faith, trusting in the King. Now we've purpose to let this be a moment.